Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host, Vincent Emanuele, and we're speaking with Mike Albert today. This is the second part of a two-part conversation about participatory economics. Mike, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So last time we left off talking about uh, participatory planning, some of the questions around it uh, concerning um, beyond markets, central planning, uh, you you also address concerns related to participatory economics, perhaps sounding mechanical. Uh, those are all the things we touched on last time. But we left off on a very important sort of dynamic of economics and what we're dealing with today. As everyone knows, the environment is being destroyed. Climate change is ravaging the planet. And I think any conversation, obviously, that's connected to economics has to take into consideration what that economic system will do to the planet, how it relates to the planet. So why don't we start with a very simple question. <laughs> how does your economic system, participatory economics, uh, deal with issues surrounding ecology? That's a simple question. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, it, it deals with everything essentially the same way. The things are different from each other, but it deals with them effectively the same way. Ecology, I mean, ordinarily what you have in an economy is that somebody's making an automobile, say, or some unit, some workplace is making an automobile, and somebody is consuming it. So in a, in a typical market system, the only two participants in the discussion are the producer and the consumer. And the producer takes into account their own situation and the consumer takes into account their own situation. And that's the end of it. Um, there's a bargaining power mediates and the transaction occurs. But what doesn't happen is for uh, the people who might be outside the plant and enduring the fumes that come out of the top of the plant, they're not in on the transaction. And the person who bought the vehicle, the car, drives around, and the people who are breathing the stuff that comes from the car aren't in on the transaction. And nor is the issue of, well, to a degree, the issue of using the resources is involved, but not as fully as it should be. So if you want to have a good economy um, that in particular is good for ecology, but also other things, because there, you know, imagine that we're talking about, uh, I don't know, the consumption of alcohol. So on the one hand, it has an effect on the person drinking the whiskey, and on the other hand, it has an effect on the worker producing the whiskey. But what if it's a whole lot of drinking? Uh, then it has an effect on the entire healthcare system, and that affects everybody. And so these are called externalities. They're things that are external to the immediate buyer and seller. And in a market system, uh, the immediate buyer and seller are the only one who have a say in whether the transaction occurs or not, and they take into account their own situation. In a centrally planned system, it could be a little better than that because the central planners can, you know, research the situation and try to take into account other factors. So in participatory economics, the idea is, um, it's a little subtle to, to do in any kind of detail, but the idea is that consumption occurs not only by individual buyers and sellers, um, but by um, councils of buyers and sellers. So neighborhood councils or 
countywide councils or a state in the United States council of consumers. And on the producer side, it's, uh, you know, the local work team, the workforce in the, in the place that's producing the stuff and the whole industry. And so what you want to do is have the transaction reflect the impact on and their assessment of it, uh, those various levels of the economy. So if you're building a dam, it, it, it should take into account uh, the effect on the people who might be moved out of their homes downstream of the dam or upstream, I don't know, whatever it is, uh, as well as the people who might eventually consume the electricity from the dam and so on. So what the, what the participatory planning system does is it allows individuals and groups to register their desire, not only for things like a car, but also for things like clean air, um, uh, clean water, and so on, uh, you know, a temperate climate, what have you. Those things are also part of the negotiation back and forth of inputs and outputs in the economy. Uh, and the claim is, it's not something that we're going to be able to do, I think, in, you know, in this kind of a format, but the claim is that the participatory economic system, participatory planning, is able to do that, that it, in, in fact, can incorporate the will of those who are affected at every level. Now, I should say something about, there are some, some people who would say, well, that's not enough. And, and maybe they're right. So they would say, well, spotted owls are going to go extinct. And spotted owls can't talk. And spotted owls can't be part of the planning process. So who represents these species that might be hurt by economic decisions? Mm -hmm. And participatory planning doesn't do any better in that regard, intrinsically, than markets do because spotted owls can't be part of the planning process. On the other hand, participatory planning is much better than say markets or central planning for owls or whatever other species, because it's possible for the political system in participatory economics to easily put rules into the picture. For instance, you know, nothing that damages a spotted owl is permitted or some sensible rule. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be imposed on participatory planning and participatory economics by a political system without, without upsetting the operations of the economy. In a market system, it does upset. I mean, the right-wingers say that when the government intervenes, it upsets market dynamics and market calculations. And it's actually true, it does. It's just that it can upset it for the better, not only for the worse. Anyway, uh, the 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 exact processes about how it work i think is probably not that important and it's not that different from individual consumption or a neighborhood consumption so for instance a neighborhood consuming a new pool um, the neighborhood as a group collectively if it wants a new pool has to has to allot a certain amount of its income to purchasing the pool collectively um, as compared to the, each individual in the neighborhood purchasing food to cook for their meals, different process. But it's the same process. It's just that sometimes it's registering the desires of individuals summed up 
and sometimes it's re registering literally the desires of the whole community. And the same thing can be true for a neighborhood or a state or a county and so on. And it can be true for not only a new pool, but clean air. Um, uh, and so the desires for these things um, uh, go into the negotiation based on prices uh, for inputs and outputs. So the claim for participatory economics is that prices in participatory economics, valuations of things, take into account their full social and ecological implications, at least to the extent that we know them. Well, I, th uh, I think that's where the question becomes whether or not that's possible. I mean, I think the issue becomes whether or not you can tally. So in other words, if you have a factory, like we have a factory here in northwest Indiana that produces steel and a coal-fired power plant, it's not just that the people who are in Northwest Indiana say are being affected by the pollution. It's quite literally every single person and every single species on the planet is impacted by every single thing that happens at that factory. Um, and that's true in general. That's not just true for that. So for instance, suppose you're doing something simple you're making bicycles. Yeah. Well, when you make a bicycle, you use some steel, let's say. Yeah. When you, when you use the steel to make the bicycle, you're not using the steel to do something else, mm -hmm. right? And so... Assuming that, that you have to make the steel. That, but that's, well, okay, if it's in infinite supply, okay. But if it's not in infinite supply, yeah. then you're using some of it to some purpose and not yeah. to some other purpose. And that affects anybody who might have been, you know, impacted by any of those purposes. That's true. But after a while, the, the effects become relatively small and they are, they have to be, they have to appear in the valuation. So in other words, if, if the, if the effect of pollution is great, then that should show up in the price of things that pollute. If the price of, if the, if the rareness, the, uh, the, the importance of steel and it's, um, uh, the difficulty of producing it is great, then that shows up in the price and it shows up in the price of stuff that uses deal. And so when the, when the decisions are made, you, you may remember that when we talked about how much income people get, it was supposed to be due to how long they work, how hard they work and the onerousness of the conditions under which they work, which of course is not something we have now. We have virtually the opposite. But in any case, that's what's supposed to happen in participatory economics, but only if they're doing socially valuable work. So I can't go into my backyard, dig holes, have my kid shoot water at me while I'm doing it. So the conditions are onerous. I'm doing hard work and I do it all day long and I want a high income for it. I can't get it because I'm not producing something that anybody wants. Mm -hmm. I also can't be the shortstop for the New York Yankees because nobody wants to watch me play shortstop, right? So you can't do things which are underutilizing the available resources and tools that you're employing. That that becomes in it, it well, the economists would call it inefficient, but it's basically not doing things that are socially valuable enough. And that's, that's how the economy sort of works. It's, it's juggling all the choices so that you wind up using stuff, whether it be labor or equipment or resources, right? Um, 
you're putting it to good use. You're doing something socially valuable enough so that it should it should be done as compared to wasting it, right? To, to using the steel to produce, I don't know, um, uh, paperweights, which are not, not worthy of the steel. In other words, there's not enough benefit coming from it. Okay, so going over to ecology, the point is that some things have negative impact and some things have, you know, so you can't, setting up a plant which produces steel but produces so much pollution that the negative effects are offset the benefit is a mistake clearly but if you start to reduce that pollution and you start to get benefits from the steel there comes a point where it makes sense to operate where you're not being inefficient you're not um producing something that is so damaging that it's offsetting the benefit that you're producing. And an allocation system has to make those kinds of determinations. Markets can't do it because they don't get the information about pollution, even in the best case, they, they, uh, about ecological impact. They don't get that information. And actually the government tries to, to the extent that it's a reasonable government, tries to intervene and put some of that information in there and you get you know, the Environmental Protection Agency and so on and so forth, trying to um, put constraints on market choices. If you don't put those constraints on, markets would just totally obliterate the ecology because they pay no attention to it. And, and the desire for profit, right, causes you to keep doing things which are having detrimental effects on the ecology. And you do them so much that you do them well past when the damage is worse than the than the benefit witness now you know climate damage may may terminate life it certainly didn't generate anything that warrants terminating life okay so so the allocation system has to be able to incorporate a a representation of those of those impacts of the of the valuations and so for your plant um in you know in indiana if it's spewing stuff that's going into illinois illinois has to be able to not illinois as an entity you know the people of illinois have to be able to manifest that in in the economic plan and what happens is the the um you know the the, the pollution offset has to has to be paid for and the the negotiations cause that plant um, to either cut back on its pollution or shut its doors. Um, if it, you know, in, in the extreme case where it's, do, it's doing more damage than it's than it's benefiting, it's just not it's not worth doing. It's a bad idea, and that, that's what has to happen through the allocation system. Um, but fundamentally, this is about the ability for people to participate. So fundamentally, this is about the ability for people who are going to be impacted by as many decisions as possible, or as many decisions that will impact them as possible, they should have a, a, you know, a process to participate in. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it, but there's a different, there's a slightly different way. So you mentioned there's this plant, right? And there's, there's another one, and there's another one, and there's another one. So do the consumers, that is the potential um affectees, the victims, the people who will be breathing the pollution, do they have to um, uh, 
negotiate with each plant? Do they have to look into the operations of each plant? Well, if they had to do that, it would be impossible, like you said. But what, but what they can do is manifest their desire for clean air. And, it, and, in, and that affects all the plants. In other words, that valuation then goes back into the calculation of inputs and outputs for all the plants. Without the, without the, the um, public, without the consumers having to um, literally interact with each plant individually, right? Yeah, and I don't want to get too bogged down in the details because in our last conversation, it was really clear that, I mean, you had said this isn't a blueprint. This, even though people might refer to it as a blueprint, this is, you're not trying to lay out every single detailed position of every single policy and every single aspect of the economy. This is just like. No, a, but it's the, the, the real model has to go further than I'm going right here. But I, I don't think I can do it verbally well enough to risk it um, and and nor would anybody be able to take it away what I mean ultimately if you want that level of understanding of an economic system you have to look into it it's not that different than capitalism I mean most people don't have the slightest idea right of how General Motors determines how many cars it's going to produce much less how and then you know ask any question you want um, how they're going to organize the workplace, how they're going to. So what what I think participatory economics does at, at the most general level that you're just that you're saying I want to present is it provides some guidelines, it provides some clarity, it provides some some idea of what the outcome should be. And it, you know, it also says what the the institutions are, you know, it's workers and consumers councils. There are also something called facilitation boards in it. That's really the, the end of it. That those are the key features. And that's just, I don't know whether I, I, I wish I remembered better what we did in part one, but, um, there are rounds of planning and participatory planning. Um, workers make proposals, consumers make proposals. Uh, so too do neighborhoods or industries. So it happens at various levels. So these proposals are made, uh, they are, um, meshed or they are compared to each other. There might be, and there will be more demand than supply initially. Right. And, and then there are rounds of, they're called iterations in economics, but there are rounds of, um, negotiation of people changing their proposals in light of what appear to be the prices, what appear to be the values, which, which then become more and more accurate as the process proceeds to its conclusion. And it's the prices of things like clean air, clean water, um, uh, sound, right? I, you know, acceptable levels of sound, uh, and on and on, as well as the price of resources and the price and so on that goes into the, the decisions by the producers and the consumers. It goes into their, their, their adapting their proposals to arrive at a final plan. And it has to take into account ecological implications as well as social implications. Um, and that's what typically doesn't happen in market system. Happens a little bit in central planning, except that in central planning, the planners have, have interests like owners have interests in capitalism and that disrupts doing it well. See the, the difference 
that's another difference in capitalism you got owners you got a ruling class you know a class of people who have a certain kind of interest and who pursue it by pursuing profit and in um, centrally planned uh, uh, economies and in market economies without owners you still have a coordinator class who have interests who are protecting their own interests who are enlarging their own and and pursuing policies that uh, enrich themselves but in participatory planning and participatory economics you just don't have that you've eliminated owners they, they're not there there's and there's no class of people who are less than the whole population who are monopolizing empowering work so you don't have a sector of people who can aggrandize itself so the functioning of the of the planning system is not only i think vastly better in and of itself it's not distorted by a sector of people who who want outcomes entirely different than would ordinarily you know arrive so you could imagine central planning do a, a really pretty good job if it weren't for the fact that it precludes participation. You could still get the information. It precludes participation and it creates a sector of people who don't want to do a good job. They, they want to enrich themselves. Um, I don't know whether all that was clear. I hope so. Yeah, no, 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 it is. I think that the, the, the question that arises is how you reach the classless uh, context in which you would then want to operate. But that's, again, this gets back to sort of, you know, you're not trying to lay out every single process and exactly how it would play out. Um, these are, well, that's, that's even just, I mean, that's about strategy. That's about winning, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and that is hard. That, that I think is, is, you know, because it's much more complex. I mean, when you get down to it, an economy is not that incredibly complex an entity, right? I've I've cut it down to producers and consumers and a mechanism of connecting the two allocation, and and that's the heart of it. Well, right? finance. I, I think the the issue becomes finance. I mean, finance is a key component to the global economy. I mean, in finance. fact, I don't know how we would function without. I mean, this is, I think this gets to really interesting work that some of the uh, Marxist economists are doing about public finance. You know, what does it, what would it look like to socialize finance systems? Um, in other words, to me, when you start getting into the finance system, like one little decision in Wall Street could make the d difference between somebody in Southern Africa buying a load of grain for five times the price or what it is. I mean, to me, that seems infinitely complex in other words i get worried yeah, but, but when that's I'm here, in, the, in the system we have but we have to go from see this is i think where i'm having i think where a lot of people will have the 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 thing that i think has to be developed is the transition what's going to okay. have to be developed are the ideas of going from a highly divided class system to then leveling it out to no class no coordinator class etc um sort of the same thing with what we were just talking about yeah, no, there's no question. You know what I mean? Like when people look it's at the... It's one thing to say, here's a picture of an economy. You know, so we take 300 pages and we and we write up a picture of a, of a good economy. Yeah. Right? That's one thing. Um, but hello, we skipped a little something. That's what you were saying. We skipped that we don't have that now. We have something incredibly different now. 
and you can't just magically go from one to the other. Yeah. Um, partly because of the institutions, but also because of the people and because of the mindset that people have and the habits that they have and all the rest of it. And that's true. Um, and so the process of getting from one to the other is not easy and uh, is not quick and, uh, you know, can involve losing. Uh, it, you know, it can involve uh, going backwards. I mean, we talked, I think, about um, taking over a workplace. That, yeah. It makes a good example, I think. Taking over a workplace, having all the goodwill in the world, having all the good values in the world, um, equalizing or, or making just wages, um, trying to to improve conditions, instituting democracy, doing all these things, and leaving the old division of labor because you just don't even think about it. it that's the way it is. That's, that's reality is in your head. And then the old division of labor brings back all the old crap. So you made a big mistake. Even if you know that there's gonna, that, that could happen, it's not so easy to change the division of labor instantly. How do you change the division of labor in a hospital in a day? You can't, you know, you know, you can't have the, the surgeons not do surgery and then no one is there to replace them and then people are dying. So you can't do that and you can't, and there's lots of things that you can't do in a day. So it takes time. Yeah, that's true. And so, and I think, we can understand those problems in general. The details of dealing with them will probably only emerge in practice. Right. Right. right for lots of reasons. Yeah. Um, That's the way it is with most. I mean, this is the way it is with most political organizing. In other words, we regularly encounter people who have all kinds of ideas about what they want. And then it gets down to how do you transition from what we have uh, to the thing that we want. Um, no, that all that all makes sense, and I don't want to harp on that because, again, this is something we mentioned in the last conversation yep. as well. Um, these are, I think, some of the the final questions I know are a little more broad. Um, I'm looking okay. through some of them now. So, ah, some of them are a little little detailed, but this is a broad one. Um, participatory economics has seemed to have a lot of supporters over the years, but has never taken off in a big way as a subject for wide consideration. Do you think that that's the case, and if so, why so? Yeah, I do think it's the case. I mean, it would be ridiculous of me to deny it. Um, uh, I, th I think it's very much the case. There have been people who have paid close attention, who have read and thought and, um, and tried to implement elements of it in their own work and in their own uh, co-ops and so on. Yeah, all that's true. But at the same time, uh, the number of people who you know, I don't know what measure we want to use. The number of people who are teaching it in any context is relatively low. The number of people who are buying those books is relatively low. The number of people who at political meetings are going to say things that derive from it. So, for instance, wait a minute here. Our organization isn't too welcoming or friendly to working people. And maybe that's because we're all... Um, PhDs, or we're all, you know, our organization is is structured in such a way as to say to working people, wait, this is a place uh, that's friendly to doctors and lawyers and engineer types, but not to you. Um, culturally, 
and by its behavior and so on. Okay, so it, it, I, I agree that it's had a, uh, it's had a hard time getting a hearing. Uh, it doesn't even tend to get um, a critical hearing. Uh, it tends to get ignored more than it gets critiqued, far more. Um, so why is that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. I have my own uh, notion about why that is, uh, but somebody else might have a different one. So the most obvious one is it's stupid. You know, <laughs> participatory economics is a stupid idea. It's utopian gibberish, and we shouldn't be wasting our time with it. Okay, so that's one perspective. If it's true, then the, the then what you described is a perfectly sensible reaction to it. A, a few flakes pay attention, and most people are wise enough to ignore it. Another formulation would be, uh, uh, no, this is pretty well thought out and pretty smart. And even if it's not perfect, which what is, um, it, it does provide a good basis for discussing and moving forward on a whole lot of axes, which we're not, we're not doing. We're not moving forward on them. It's not as if some other great thing is, you know, is pushing us forward on those axes. Um, and I think that, that there are two reasons, basically, in my mind for that. One is a generalized um, reticence about vision and a generalized disinclination uh, to arrive at a shared vision. It isn't only economics. Um, what's the political shared vision? What's the kinship shared vision? What's the shared vision for race and cultural relations? Um, there's participatory society. So people try to put forward visions for those things that are sort of in the same ballpark as participatory economics. But what else is there? There's not that much on anything. So one problem is a disinclination to say, this is what we really want. Right. Um, this is the vision that we really want about anything. Yeah. Um, uh, sometimes you see it in some areas so there have been elements of it say in education people talk about what education ought to be um but there's very it's it's few and far between uh and so i think the reason for that generalized resistance i tend to think it's because people think it's impossible you know i tend to think it's because people are good now it's not people per se, now it's the broad left per se, is good, wants to win positive changes, wants to fight against injustice, but doesn't want to start thinking about vision, partly because it feels it's a waste of time, it, it's, it's, it's impossible, and partly because it feels it can't handle the issues. And, you know, so in other words, a variety of reasons ranging from cynicism about possibility to modesty about the potential of doing it intelligently to, you know, a number of things like that preclude vision period of any kind at all. So participatory economics doesn't get much hearing. But, you know, when you get right down to it, neither does market socialism or centrally planned socialism. They exist because they've existed in countries. Right. But if you ask how many people on the left in the United States can tell you with some degree of confidence how either one would work, 
and whether they like it or don't like it, um, it, not so much. And that I think reflects the idea that it's just irrelevant. It's, it's, it's out there in cloud cuckoo land and it, it doesn't bear on anything, which I think is a mistake, but nonetheless, I think that's the view. Yeah. But the other reason for participatory economics is specific to participatory economics. And that is that it, it addresses this issue of the coordinator class in a critical way, um, which unsurprisingly should meet with a certain amount of resistance from people who not malevolently, but nonetheless are in or part of, or would like to be part of that group, that class, and take a certain degree of offense and, you know, uh, um, distaste for what is challenging their identity and values. Um, and so that gives a second reason. So, and I think that reason, I should say, to be honest, I think that reason has a lot to do with why radical media haven't really, hasn't really taken it up and addressed it much. And the reason there, I think, is because it's risky to do so. If participatory economics makes gains, then radical media and other radical institutions you know, ranging from, say, unions to publishing houses to um, uh, community groups to organizing projects would have to take into account the lessons of it in the same way that they take into account the lessons of, of schools of thought around race or gender, and they try to deal with getting rid of racism and sexism internally. If they had, if they had to take seriously participatory economics, and they couldn't demonstrate the, you know, the the era of the way of thinking about the coordinator class, an extra class to be dealt with, then they'd have to deal with it. And people who are in that group and who, by virtue of being in it, are running all those institutions, uh, don't want to deal with it. And it's not malevolent necessarily. It's because they think, wait a minute, we're doing a pretty good job here. And to get rid of us or to get rid of the role that we're fulling, fulfilling and to think that everybody should be participating in this dynamic is just going to reduce the quality. And we don't want to reduce the quality. And so we're going to protect ourselves against this. But you can't protect yourself against it in, an out, in a straight out debate of whether or not 20% of the population should monopolize the empowering tasks. Mm -hmm. So you just don't have the debate at all. You just silence the whole thing. And I think that's part of it also, honestly. Now, that's a self-serving view of what's going on. I mean, it says it's not because the, the, view, the vision is stupid. It's because the vision is challenging which is, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's nice for me. No, but, well, you mentioned before though, you said there was a, you, you were, you know, you, you mentioned that there might be a people who just don't think it's that good or people who disagree for any number of reasons. I mean, it's not that you just mentioned that this is the only reason why people would disagree. No. So I think uh, you're being fair there. And I, and a lot of that makes sense, of course, as we've talked before, uh, particularly the notion that people don't, feel like they can make change. I mean, to me, that's sort of at the core of all of our challenges right now, it's just like getting people above and beyond that. Um, I do know that we've talked about 
criticism about optimal, that we wouldn't get optimal decisions last time, uh, that these kinds of decisions would deny expertise and talent. We spoke about that last time. Because it doesn't. We spoke, we spoke about another criticism that, peop, that I've heard is that equitable remuneration won't elicit sufficient work, that it would screw up incentives. We, I know we talked about that last time as well. Um, how about, no, we talked about, see, this is, we, we also did discuss balanced job complexes. We talked about that a lot last time. One of the questions that I had was, are geniuses prevented from using their genius? But we spoke about that last time as well. And are people made to do things that they cannot do well? If you want to, you can touch on those again, just to be clear, if you want to. Oh, okay. Um, people aren't forced to do things that, that they don't do well for the reason I mentioned a little bit earlier this time also. Work production has to be socially valuable, Right. So it doesn't make any sense to, to turn me into a surgeon, cutting people open and killing them, nor does it make sense to have me doing anything else that I can't do well enough so that the production is socially valuable. And it being socially valuable doesn't just mean that the thing that's produced somebody wants, although that's crucial, it also means that along the way, I didn't waste a whole lot of stuff, right? I, I didn't, I didn't, um, make the production of that thing so costly that it, that the debits outweigh the benefits. Um, so no, people aren't, not only aren't forced to do things that they aren't good at doing, but they have to do things that they do well enough so that their production is, is rational. So that their production is producing something of value without, you know, having so much detriment that it offsets it. I hope that's clear. Uh, so, no, and no, it's also not the case that people, you know, are prevented from exercising their genius, except in one sense. Um, in one sense, I guess it is the case. So, for instance, suppose I'm a, I don't know, or not me, suppose you're a genius surgeon. Uh, so you're incredibly adept at surgery, um, way better than the next guy. Uh well, even in, in a capitalist economy, something strange results. That is, if you, if you do surgery for an extra two hours a day, over the course of the year, you'll save another 100 people, let's say. And if you don't do the surgery for those two hours a day, you won't save the 100 people. So if you look at it just that way, who gives a shit about your discomfort for the extra two hours? Save the goddamn 100 people, would be what somebody would say. And now you're working like a maniac precisely because you're good at it, right? And because every time you do it, society benefits. And this is a hard one to crack unless you look at it larger and you make room for other people to save those 100 extra people, or instead of 100, 500. And that's sort of what participatory economics does by having balanced job complexes. Instead of having... The, the, instead of assuming that the number of people, and not just assuming it, but forcing it, that the number of people who will be able to do surgeries is kept to a minimum, the American Medical Association exists to keep down, in a very real sense, the number of people who can do high-level medical work 
precisely so that the income for high level medical work will be astronomical because the, the people doing it have so much bargaining power. So they guard against nurses getting those extra capabilities. They guard against more people going to medical school by raising the cost astronomically and by making all sorts of hurdles that you have to jump through. So, so if you get rid of that dynamic, then you can get rid of the dynamic of, of our having to exploit you as a great surgeon, right? To save people because we have lots of people who can do it. Yeah. Now, looked at from the opposite direction, somebody might say, well, wait a minute, you're telling the great surgeon that he, he can't or she can't do it 80 hours a week, right? Because now, if you do it 80 hours a week, well, you're taking away hours of surgery from people, other people who could do it, mm -hmm. right? And, well, that's the way the cookie crumbles. You, it, you can't just do anything you want. You have to operate inside of a balanced job complex and participatory economics. And what we get for that is a classless society in which production occurs, you know, to meet human needs and develop human potentials and in which there's equity and so on and so forth. Those are all the things we gain. And the things that we lose is Einstein um, can't do physics all day. Of course, the reality is he, he never did physics all day. And neither does anybody else, but that's what people think in their heads. But you as a surgeon can't do surgery, you know, from eight in the morning until nine at night every day. Um, you have to do other stuff too. And that's just the way it is. That's what that's if they don't though? Necessary. Huh? What if they don't? Like what if well, they just, it's I like saying in capitalism, what if somebody doesn't work at a, unbalanced job complex well what is that or you know what if somebody chooses to work at a balanced job complex instead of at an unbalanced one well they can't why can't they because all jobs are unbalanced in capitalism right all jobs are either coordinator class jobs with a, a monopolization of empowering tasks or they're working class jobs i don't right? know about that 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 i don't know because i think there's tons of jobs that have that come with them status that are working class jobs there. What's that? I didn't say anything about status. Yeah. Small businesses. You know, I, I don't. All right. All right. There are small, small businesses is a wrinkle. I, I'll certainly grant you that. But you know, what I wouldn't grant is that in, in the, in, you know, in the broad economy and corporations and so on and so forth, there are generally people who are coordinator class and working class. There might be some, some fuzziness at the edges of each. Yeah. So the real example of fuzziness, I think, would be, say, you know, primary school teachers in some places um, where the burden of work is is exorbitant. But they also have a, a degree of of uh, of empowerment in their work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's some fuzziness. But uh, by and large, that's that's the picture. And and the reason the, the reason why then that you can't do certain things isn't because somebody's standing there with a gun, but because the option doesn't exist. So in a participatory economy, all the jobs throughout the economy, right, are balanced for empowerment. So now if I want a job, which is all empowered work, well, I might want that. But when I go out there into the workplace, there are none. It's not there, right? And there's and it's there's no such thing as my being an entrepreneur and creating a workplace and deciding that I'll run it 
um, the, the planning system won't interact with me, right? Other suppliers won't supply me. So Unless, it's, yeah, no, no, no. I'm, I'm getting, I'm going to get too far into the, that's why I feel like it might've been. <laughs> I feel like it might have been better if somebody else interviewed you for this because I just have more and more, more and more questions as we go on. I mean, the thing I'm thinking about is like people within that system saying we're not going to like we're going to create a black market of highly. You know what I'm saying? Like that kind yeah, of thing. Well, go ahead and say it. No, no, no. That's all I'm thinking. I'm just thinking like today right, well, we let's have take an example. like let's today, take a... like today in capitalism. You have people who go, I'm going to opt out of this system by starting a commune or a co-op or try to opt right. out as best I can, whatever it is. Right. I'm wondering also about people in this system saying, I don't, you know, like I'm. That's not a question that shouldn't be asked. That's a very good question. Um, and a lot of people wouldn't think to ask it, but it's, it's a good question. So suppose we had a participatory economy mm -hmm. and suppose somebody wants to opt out. Well, why would somebody want to opt out? Um let's take a simple example that doesn't require a lot and therefore ought to be simply possible, right? Let's say that um, um, uh, Djokovic, you know, the, the tennis player, um, uh, says to himself, and for those that, I mean, you know, he's one of the best tennis players in the world. So he says to himself, well, what is this nonsense? My income is sort of like everybody else's income. I play tennis. I clean up the tennis courts. I do this. I do that in my tennis industry. In other words, in the in the council of athletes and tennis players and the industry that delivers, which involves much more than just playing. It involves the the stadiums and the equipment and the, and so on and so forth. So he's got a balanced job complex, and he says to himself, "This is ridiculous. I'm the best in the goddamn world. Why am I doing this? I think I'll opt out." and I'll do better. Okay, so how would he do that? To do that, he says to himself, hmm, I can't sort of put on a tournament by myself, but I can teach. And there's a lot of people out there who would love to, to learn, to get to play with me, basically, right? They would give an arm and a leg to get on the court with me and play for an hour or two, much less an hour or two a week, right? And have me help them get better. And that's true. It's true now, anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, so he decides to do that. So how does he do it? Well, the first problem is that he has to find tennis courts, um, and they're all part of councils and industries. But let's say he manages that somehow. Um, not so trivial in a participatory economy, but let's say he manages that. Um, and then he's got to get the equipment and the tennis balls and everything else, and then he's got to become visible to people. And none of this is easy in a participatory economy. Because the way you do these things in a participatory economy is not by dictating it or something like that. It's with, with workers who have balanced job comp and so on and so forth. But let's say he can do all that. So it gets down to the nitty gritty and he's, and you know, I want to learn. So I'm on the other side of the net. And he says, okay, Michael, what are you going to pay me? And now comes another problem. What am I going to pay him? Right? I have, because of my work in a balanced job complex, I have, let's call it an average or maybe a little bit over average because I work longer or under average because I choose to work less long income. So how am I going to just, how am I going to pay this guy to give me tennis lessons? Right. And not only that, if he's going to do that, let's say eight hours a day, every day, and people are going to pay a high rate. So now somehow Djokovic has this high income, right? What is he going to do with it? 
This is a real issue. In, in current society, if I get a high income, forget this, by stealing, right, by anything at all, it doesn't, it doesn't label me. It doesn't distinguish me. In a participatory economy, there's no such thing as somebody with a real high income. The only way you can have a real high income is by cheating or theft. You can't have it otherwise. So if Djokovic manages to get past all the hurdles, right, and get a whole row of people who are going to give him stuff, and probably they have to pay him in kind, not in access to, to the social product. So one of them gives him a chicken and one of them gives him a TV and one of them... But even if they could pay him in money, he can't spend it, right? He can't, he can't consume that much unless he puts it in his basement. So what he has to do is violate all of society's norms, be an asshole, um, and enjoy it in the privacy of his basement as long as he can get away with it. Mm-hmm. It's not. See, this is what I mean by the structure of. But the I system. think that's like five, ten percent of society. That would what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, what percentage? I think the the studies are like three to five percent are sociopaths in in society. So, like, you got five percent of people who yeah, are going to. We're talking. Like, then the solu- which three? Which in well a country? The solution, you might as well ask what the solution is to Hannibal Lecter. And the answer is <laughs> well, police. no, but I think what did you say the answer was? Police. Police. That is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying that this yeah. society doesn't have. It has rules. Yeah. It has laws. It has things that are violations of the social code and the and the social agreements, mm-hmm. right? Raging from murder to, you know, whatever. Right, right. And so to the extent that you need it, there's no particular reason why you can't have those kinds of enforcement, admittedly, by people who have a balanced job complex, mm-hmm. right? By people who have a workers' council, by people who are also under the purview of the larger councils in the areas where they're doing their work and so on and so forth. But what I'm trying to point out is that this, that the opportunity for those kinds of violations is much, much less. Sure. Right. Regardless of whether there are psychopaths who would like to do it. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is somebody wants to do it because they want to do it. Yeah. In other words, they get a kick out of breaking the, the rules. Sure. Okay, fine. Uh, those people you might have to, you know, you might have to rein them in depending upon what they're doing. I'm or also thinking about things that people would ask. Hmm? Yeah, I mean, I'm also just thinking about things that people would ask or things that would come into people's minds right away. You know, the way what? that I, the way that I would hear, the way that we've talked. Yeah, no, with, yeah. You know. Well, that's, that's fine. I mean, I it 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 reveals that a society. It doesn't even have to be just participatory economics. A society and an economy that doesn't have class division and doesn't have huge disparities of wealth, right, is much less vulnerable or uh, is is a much less um, conducive environment to violations, to stealing, to stuff like that. Because it's much harder to get away with. And it's much harder to enjoy. I mean, to... And there's less incentive, of course. And, And it's not as if you're in danger of going hungry. I mean, that's the other end of the, of the scale. At that end of the scale, I think it just eliminates it. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, nobody would be crazy enough to to run into the local store and, and steal stuff because they have a sufficient income so that it makes no sense. Right. You know, right. why would you risk? I mean, stealing is a violation. 
Um, why would why would you do that? Why would you risk and whatever the punishment is? Uh, you wouldn't. So unless you get a kick out of doing it, in which case, okay, that you have to deal with. But yeah. that's mental illness more than it is, you know, stealing for gain. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, how, uh, yeah. How let me let me finish with a couple of broad questions because that's what we have left, and I think it would help. Um, I think what we'll do for people who are going to watch this or listen to this, and I think it'll be interesting, is just to have a session of maybe you and Sergio and I just talking about any random questions we had as this has come came up or questions that I know Sergio's listening to this as we're talking. And I know he has questions as well, but he doesn't have a mic on him right now. But, you know, in the future we could do one. Where Yeah, I think that would be really, I think it would be really good. Um, and the other thing is the transition problem. I mean, well, that's what or, I'm most interested in. I mean, here, let me put it this way, Mike. I'll, I'll yeah. just say this simply. There's not, there's very little, if anything that you've mentioned in the hour and a half, two hours that we've talked about uh, for the course of these two interviews that I disagree with ideologically right. through my value system, anything like that. The issue, and probably because we organize. So I think our thing always comes back to, I can get How down get with, there? yeah, a lot of, very interesting principles, positions, visions. And I think it's necessary because if we don't know where we're going, how the hell do we know how we're going to get there? But I'm very much interested in that. How would you get here? What does that transition look like? I mean, that, that to me is like infinitely fascinating. I hope that's not offensive. I mean, I find that obviously the first principles and the vision fascinating as well, but. Okay. But if, if, if what you want to arrive at, is market socialism or centrally planned socialism, which I call market coordinatorism or centrally planned coordinatorism, that that sh- that would have one um, um, variegated but but thematic kind of transitional approach, sure, strategic approach, and it'd be very different yeah. from this. So um, you know, developing a, a a party with a central leadership makes sense in with certain goals in mind, and it makes no sense with other goals in mind. Sure, it comes contrary to what you're trying to do. So that's at the big scale. Um, I, I assume that what what the arrival at participatory socialism, let's call it, and its participatory economics, and it's a new kinship, and it's new cultural relations, and so on and so forth, um, that that the process would have to include the development of uh, um, um, community, meaning neighborhood and regional councils, um, workplace councils um, that would be concerning themselves with demands that would seek to move steadily closer to self-management, steadily closer to a leveled division of labor and, and uh, um, uh, balanced job complexes and steadily closer to re- equitable remuneration. If, if, so in other words, if those are the components, the key components of what you're trying to get at, then, for example, when you demand $15 an hour for minimum wage, one way to do it is to, do, all right, we're for $15 an hour for minimum wage. We win that and we go home. Um, and because we've talked about it as $15 an hour is good and $15 an hour is our goal. 
But another way to approach the thing is to say our goal is equitable remuneration. And it's a long ways from $15 an hour because $15 an hour is still low money going to those who should be getting, at least in this system, the most money, the most income because they're doing the most onerous and the most, they're working longest and they're, you know. Um, so you organize the campaign differently. The campaign is organized with the, with the mindset that it produces awareness and consciousness and desires that go well beyond $15 an hour so that when you win $15 an hour, it's just a stepping stone toward what, toward the next step, $25, whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And the same thing for other kinds of demands. Um, but then there's also, you would expect to see changes inside of our institutions, sure. inside of the way we organize ourselves and right. so on. Right. Um, and you'd expect to see that. And if those things unfold, you can imagine, I can imagine anyway, um, you know, strikes, um, uh, school takeovers. I'm not talking now colleges, fine, yes, but public school takeovers by teachers and faculty. Um, I mean, teachers and, and parents mm -hmm. um, who are basically saying, well, this is a public institution and it's going to start serving the public. It's not going to produce people who are prepared to endure boredom and take orders. It's going to you know, enhance the lives of our kids and it's going to make them able to, to function um, with, with some sense of efficacy and, and impact on things. And also, this is a building and it's in our community all night long and nothing's happening with it. So why shouldn't it have some education for adults at yeah. night? And why should, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You can imagine, I mean, once you start to imagine people taking control of their own lives where they are, right. you can imagine all kinds of campaigns. Yep. No, I think the hard part of this is not this. It, it, it's something very different. It's how you, how you go from not mobilize to mobilize, whether an individual or a group, how you go from um, either sort of just walking through your existence because you're sort of given up on any hope for anything better to being pissed and sometimes even, you know, calling it out and, and, and asking for things to being part of a movement that's really systematically trying to change the world. Yeah. You know, these are very different things. You can and see it even today. Hmm? Yeah, absolutely. You can see the people, the, the people who are empowered operate much differently within this, even within the limited context of capitalism and what we live in today, the people who do feel empowered within that system, uh, yeah. you could see the difference just on their faces. Yeah. It's huge. And, uh, yeah. um, to, to try to figure out what stands between a person and um, uh, sort of viewing the world as something that they can impact and they can join with others to change and they should do so is, is hard and discovering what that obstacle is and overcoming it, that's the task. Um, and honestly, I think that once we know how to do that task, once we learn what it means to interact in ways that accomplish that task, the rest is all downhill is the way, you know, that's the way, you know, it's like running downhill in football. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, you know, getting past the barrier, the big barrier. And we've never yeah. gotten past the big barrier. 
um, for, for any, you know, significant number of people. We started, I suppose, in the 60s. I mean, there was, there were people rumbling along past that barrier and then, and then seeing the world as something that was theirs to change. And they had a responsibility to do it and they had energy to do it. And maybe the second step isn't so easy because they didn't succeed. <laughs> but, uh, I was going to say the only uh, thing I disagree with is I'm not sure that the second step is that easy, but I agree 100% that the first step is our primary and fundamental challenge right now. Yeah, it's not so much that it's easy, but it's when you get past the first step with enough people, Yeah, then you just keep hammering, Yeah, you know, at that second step, so to speak, at the at the um, getting together enough to take over the public schools, getting right. together enough to take over neighborhoods, getting together enough to take over factories, right. getting, you know, uh, that's by downhill. I mean, it's once you're embarked on that trajectory, you just keep going, I think. Yeah. Um, or so it seems to me anyway. Let me, let me, let's finish. It's sort of a two-parted question, a two-part question, and we'll finish with this. So, how has this proposal altered over the years? And the second part of that question is what about participatory economics stands out to you as the most relevant and important sort of aspects of that system for current discussions around COVID, post-COVID economy, and so forth? Well, how it's changed, um, I'm thinking, I, I think... How about really, ecology? Let me ask you uh, about ecology, because I'm assuming I'm assuming how much we've learned about ecology might have had an impact on... Yeah, well, no. the truth is, when we first, when Robin Hanel and I were first writing this stuff, you know, the first time, mm -hmm. ecology wasn't a big factor for us. Sure. The way we thought about it was, if we solve, or if we have a good proposal for allocation, it's done. Um, it's sort of part and parcel of that. And there's some truth in that, right? In other words, if an economy functions right, it will behave properly vis-a-vis -vis the ecology. On the other hand, now we have the ecology so forefront because of the mess that's been made that it, it may, you know, it may preclude ever having a good economy. Um, so it has to be put front and center. So that, that bias has changed. And you can see it in Robin's work because he's he's become sort of an ecological economist, I suppose you could call it. Um, so that's one change, that emphasis, you're right. Uh, and another change is um, more attention to, Robin and I have a kind of a division of labor, I suppose you can say. He's more the economist, I'm more um, because of working in media and interacting in those realms. Um, more diverse, I suppose you could say. And um, he has pushed forward the the part of the planning, that's where his emphasis lies, uh, on the planning, the participatory planning, and he's pushed forward the part of it that deals with investments and the part of it that deals with externalities and made those a bit more precise. In his mind, what he's trying to do, I think it's fair to say, is push the model forward to the point where, let's say, um, uh, somebody in Venezuela 10 years ago, when Chavez was still there, right, who was going to work in the economic ministry, could look at it and say, okay, we can do this. Um, 
I see how to do this. I see what this means. Enough nuts and bolts, right? So that it so that it could be employed. I mean, obviously, many of the dimensions of it would vary from country to country, and so on and so forth. But in other words, to get the model to that that level of specificity, mm-hmm. I sometimes resist that because I I think it maybe it goes too far. But in any case, that's another change that's happened. Um, the, the most of the other changes I think probably have to do with the emergence of participatory politics, participatory kinship. In other words, it's spread into the values being employed in other domains to come up with visions there. That's been a change. Um, I hope it's obvious for people who have listened to both interviews why this is relevant for today, but for people who might not have picked that up, what would be sort of your parting words for why this is so relevant today in the context of COVID and everything else that's happening? I don't know that COVID is is critical, except insofar as it's accentuated people's doubts. Um, People really are doubtful that we can win. People are really doubtful that another world is possible. Um, and so being able to enunciate, uh, what it would look like, at least in broad strokes, that is compelling enough to sustain people's hope and sustain people's desire, I think is fundamental. I also think it's fundamental to, um, to have enough clarity about it, that it can inform, uh, our choices uh, in the present. And that was the second half of the question that you asked me, which aspects of it are relevant to the present or more relevant to the present? And I guess I would say uh, the norm for remuneration, the idea of what is just income, what is fair income, and therefore how we can fight for income improvements, reforms, right? that are nonetheless building consciousness and desire toward really just income. The idea of class, uh, of there being a class between labor and capital, and therefore of there being a possibility of winning change, and yet still having a class divided and class ruled economy, I think is of fundamental importance and contributes to realizing that a Leninist approach um, to social change is not what we want, um, or not what we should want. So I think that's crucially important. And the idea of self-management along with classlessness. I mean, these are things that, that should or could, how do I put this? Suppose that, um, uh, the desire for classlessness as participatory economics puts it forward. And the desire for equitable income as participatory economics puts it forward. And the desire for self-management as participatory economics put it forward. Whereas widely dispersed in the left, whereas widely adhered to by leftists as say the, um, you know, the idea that men and women should not have uh, disparate uh, conditions in, in work and in society. Uh, and that, you know, there's, there's no particular reason. There's no good reason at all. In fact, it's oppressive and despicable to have men dominating women or around race or around, you know, other elements of life. If those economics um, precepts or desires or principles were widely shared, 
um, I think it would have profound implications for what we do now. It would change what we mean by a left institution, a revolutionary left institution, about how it should operate, about how it should be organized, about what its should, priorities should be. All those things would change. Um, uh, in some cases by a lot, in some cases by a little. But it would make a big difference. And I think it would lead to a left that was more welcoming and accommodating to and elevating of working people. And that therefore um, was much better at enunciating the desires of working people into demands and program. I mean, I think all that would, would happen, um, would be a natural result of this kind of vision being shared and um, you know, providing guidance for what we're doing mm -hmm. um, around income, around wages, around how we organize ourselves, around how decisions are made, around all of it. Um, yeah. Uh, if that's true, then it would be valuable. If it would just be an intellectual curiosity, then I'm wasting my time. Uh, and so are so is whoever else is is working on it. You know, not just Robin, but other people. Right. We're all wasting our time if all that it is is some kind of, you know, intellectually interesting, distant, way distant thing, which has no bearing on the present. But it does have a bearing on the present. Yeah. Well, it's articulating, I think, a feeling that a lot of us have. I mean, in other words, there's no way I should feel as empowered as I do. Like, I didn't graduate. <laughs> I barely graduated high school, dropped out of college, wasn't much of an intellectual anything. But by feeling empowered... By feeling confident, um, and then by putting myself in different situations politically around ec economists or these people or those people, and you ask enough questions and you keep asking questions, you sort of find out that a lot of us have sort of been beaten into submission. A lot of us have been beaten into this sort of disempowerment where we go, well, I guess Mike, who's the big fancy economist at the university, knows how to better structure the economy than I do. Now, um, I think that the most important thing people can do uh, is to feel empowered. And I think this is, I mean, what you're describing, and that's why I don't, I don't want to sound too critical of it, because quite literally what you're describing is sort of the attitude um, or the approach that I've taken at an individual level. And then within the organizations we're in, very practical example here locally, you start out, people start out at different levels. Uh, some people come into organizing efforts with a lot more knowledge and skills and so forth. How you make sure those people don't have or aren't in a position to make all of the decisions, you empower other people, train other people. I mean, these are like the constant the constant challenges that we face on the ground. So I, I don't see it de detached at all. I think uh, the point you're making about actually instilling it in our day-to-day -day activities uh, is the more difficult point because, again, it takes people to feel that they can be empowered enough to do this. And that, that gets back to what we mentioned is probably the primary challenge, just getting people over that hump of being like, eh, I'm just, you know, who am I, you know, who am I to ask but, these questions or who am I to have you know, my own ideas? But it's interesting. If you, if you listen to um, like talk radio uh, shows that are addressing uh, sports mm -hmm. and you listen to the people who call in, uh, you, you can discern uh, pretty quickly that, uh, and if you listen to 
for that matter, people on the bus or people in the bar or wherever, um, debating issues of sports. You know, who's better? Which team is better? Well, who's going to win? Various things like that. Um, they make arguments that are based on evidence. They make arguments that are logically sound. They, um, you know, they, they pursue the issues. They are animated about them. They feel a degree of comfort with them. Uh, and yet the same person, if you switch it over to something like, well, how should work be organized? I mean, they do it every day. It's not as if they're unfamiliar with it, right? It's yep. not, right? they do that more than they play National Football League football, right? <laughs> so, they, so they actually experience it. And yet they don't feel the confidence to extrapolate from their experience and even interact with something that's brought in from elsewhere. And, and you know, it's bashed out of us. And uh, that's a disaster. And, and uh, you know, that has to be overcome. There's a lot of things that have to be overcome. Uh, but no. Yeah, I, I, I do. We can. We'll probably chop this ending part up a little bit. But I, yeah, it just reminds me that it, it makes me think about a lot of the stuff that we do. A lot of the interviews that we're. It makes me think of everything. I mean, basically, what I've learned in life is that nobody's too special. I have yet to meet too many people who I look at them or sit down with them for more than an hour or two and go, "This person impresses the shit out of me." And I don't think the things they're telling me, I don't think I could do any of those things. Now. There might be some things, like if I listen to a physicist or somebody, I go, I go. well, I don't think I can do this because I fucked off in school for 12 years. So I don't have the same background. Now, some of them are just, you know, there's, they, like you said, there are geniuses out there. Um, but when it comes to these types of issues, I have never felt like that. And the more I'm around, I mean, if the last nine months haven't proved to people... Uh, that the experts with Ivy League educations and degrees and all the rest can mismanage, you know, um, anything. Uh, I don't know what could. So I, I don't know. I, I that to me, that's the component that I walk away from these conversations. These last two conversations with you, what I walk away thinking again is, uh, how do we empower people? Um, because once you get them empowered and once they feel like they can learn or understand anything, man, they are off to the races and there's no stopping them. But, but it's clear how you don't, right? So in other words, if you, if you express what you have to say or to write in language that nobody understands, in sentences that are convoluted and in paragraphs that are beyond belief, right? Um, what are you what are you communicating what you're really trying to communicate is i'm smarter i'm from a different planet you can't do this um you know that's what postmodernism was all about um i honestly believe it was uh, people in certain fields certain intellectual fields trying to make believe that they were like mathematicians or physicists and that they had to talk a different language in order to do what they were doing now the truth is that even in math and physics you can try and you can't carry out a lot of the tasks, but you can explain it to be understandable. And, um, you know, the thing that was different about what they were doing is that they were doing nothing. They were, that all they were doing, honestly, I think, is taking uh, simple ideas, um, 
straightforward observations and dolling them up in incredibly obtuse language to make it seem like they knew something that nobody else knew. And uh, so that bears upon why do people feel disempowered? Why do people feel a lack of confidence and stuff? And what do we do about that? If I, you know, if I can't talk about things like balanced job complexes in a simple way that's comprehensible, then I have to go back to the drawing board um, to be able to do that because that's half the task. Right. I mean, you know, some things to figure it out, to figure out the exact um, um, viability of participatory planning for investments and for an ecology is not trivial, right? But you have to be able to put across the essence of it, right? You, you can't maybe do all the details, but you have to be able to put all across the essence of it um, or else why would anybody be for it? Yep. And, and so you have to do that. And uh, Well, you've done that well in the last couple of conversations. <laughs> so I, I appreciate I you. I, I think I used to do it better, honestly. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting older, but, uh, um, it, it is important to do. And so, I mean, you could also ask me, what are you frustrated by, um, regarding participatory economic, not the world, not, not everything. I'm frustrated by lots of things out there, out the window, but what are you frustrated by about participatory economics? And I guess that's how I'd answer. I'd, I'd have to say it's been frustrating um, because after all, we've been doing it a long time. It's been frustrating that either one of two things hasn't happened. Either somebody should have shot it down by now. You know, somebody should have demonstrated, um, look, this is why you're wasting your time. You're wrong. And here's why you're wrong. In which case we would have stopped wasting our time because who the hell wants to do that? Or and I'm absent that. And we have been absent that it's been frustrating that more people, I mean, not everybody, but more people haven't immersed themselves in it enough to be, I think you call the word proselytize advocates mm -hmm. to be effective advocates. Um, that's been frustrating. And I don't know why it's the case. Um, maybe I've, contributed to preventing it i don't know but in it i hope not but actually i hope so because then maybe i could do something different and it would change <laughs> but well i appreciate your time mike thank you for okay. thank you for doing the interview we appreciate okay. it uh, i thank you for having me on um we're obviously working more together on various things which has been a, a big blessing of this whole process of uh, getting together same here same here you've been watching park media i'm your host today vincent emanuele and we'll see you soon hey thank you for watching and listening if you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger you could become a patreon for as little as three dollars a month the link is available at our website parkmedia.org that's p-a-r-c media.org make sure to subscribe to our youtube channel below also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.